start of a new series, and I'm, I'm very, very excited about it, because um, we're going to be going through the book of Philippians together. And uh, it's the first time I've really preached through um, an extended series on a book of the Bible. I've preached through other parts of, of Scripture, of course, um, but it's the first time I've done something like this. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how we, how we delve into Scripture, how we learn new things, how we experience God in a new way and uh, how, we, um, how we as a church grow. And uh, this, this sermon series is all about our, our quotient of joy. Um, and, uh, and it's called Living Without Flip-Flops, and you'll find out why. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this uh, moment where we get to sit at, at your, your word with our, our Bibles open, and we get to hear from you. And I pray that what we hear would be your voice, loud and clear, Lord. Um, and when it's not you, Lord, uh, may that voice be muted, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So during my years as personnel manager on the missionary ship MV Logos Hope, we spent a lot of time in Asia. Um, and between May and August 2014, we visited South Korea. We visited actually four ports, and Korea was a very special country to many of us. And I will rem- remember Korea for many beautiful, unique, and special things. But there was one thing while we were there, and I may have shared with you this in the past, but um, either as an individual or even as a sermon, I, I, I'm not sure. But there was something that a number of our missionaries struggled with during our time in Korea. And that was that the crew members weren't allowed to wear flip-flops. It was a rule. And this might sound rather funny to us, but it was a real rule. And this rule existed because the flip-flop was considered a toilet shoe by the more conservative sector of society, um, and therefore it wasn't considered proper to wear it out and about. So for the three months that we were there, people on the ship had to go without wearing their flip-flops. And people didn't like it. Some people struggled with it actually hugely. And during this time, I cannot tell you how many people I sat down with and counseled with or counseled through this flip-flopless season. (laughs) Really. And yet somehow we survived three months without flip-flops. And this here is a start in a sermon series, as I've already explained, on the book of Philippians. And the title of this series, as you can see on the screen, is Living Without Flip-Flops. And if I was to create a subtitle for maybe this message, or even for the whole series, it would be something like, Quit Your Flip-Flopping, Get Joy in Jesus. Okay, so just hold that thought. If you're making notes, write that down. Quit your flip-flopping, get joy in Jesus. And maybe you think that I'm giving flip-flops a bit of a bad rap. Now, the thing about flip-flops is that they're fine for the beach or the pool, but you wouldn't want to climb a mountain in them or play a game of rugby in them. Flip-flops are called flip-flops because of the sound that they make. And when you hear the sound of someone walking in flip-flops, you don't think that person must be preparing for a marathon. Or that person must be going to a court hearing because they're wearing flip-flops. Flip-flops are convenient, they're cheap, they're rather disposable, but they're not dependable and they're not steady. 
In fact, think about the number of flip-flops that you've thrown away because the foot strap pulled away from the base or they wore through so that you could feel every tiny little pebble as you're walking along. And in fact, as summer is approaching, many of us have at least one or two pairs of flip-flops that we're preparing to wear to the beach or the cottage or the trailer. And flip-flops can be kicked off and put back on in a second. Flip-flops are kind of a symbol of modern leisure. Easy, relaxed, sort of non-committal. You can wear them. You can take them off again. You can put them back on. You can take them off again without even thinking about it. And you can't do that with a pair of hiking boots. A wise person once said on Pinterest about flip-flops, it's not just an accessory, it's a way of life. And another wise person on Pinterest once said, life is better in flip-flops. Now, please don't understand me. I have nothing against flip-flops. I have a pair, and I'll probably get another pair from Walmart before the the summer is out, when this pair wears through. But there is another meaning of flip-flop, and it is this. A sudden or unexpected reversal of direction or belief or attitude or policy. A sudden or unexpected reversal of direction, of belief, of attitude or of policy. Or as Katy Perry puts it more simply... You're hot, then you're cold. You're yes, then you're no. You're in, then you're out. You're up, then you're down. That's flip-flopping. And we've all seen these politicians who rose to power on the strength of a particular platform or a promise only to flip-flop afterwards on that promise. And it's not only politicians who do this, it's also us. We flip-flop. In the morning, we're gung-ho for God, and then by the afternoon, we're lukewarm and kind of drifty. And summer is a prime time for this phenomenon to happen. We're here and there. Our schedules are giving away to something a little bit more flexible, and our time and resources are split between home and the cottage. Maybe we have the kids around the house. The lawn needs mowing more regularly. We discover that we start living for the weekends. And at the same time, we're trying to prepare for fall when everything starts up again. And in the midst of that, we're trying to find some time to relax. And maybe that place where we can relax, maybe it's the lake, maybe it's the boat, maybe it's the cottage, maybe it's the backyard, maybe it's binge-watching the next season of whatever... And none of this is in itself wrong. And actually, much of it is very, very good. But if we're not careful, something starts to happen. Something begins to creep into the spaces in our lives that have been created by the lack of schedule or have been created by this new schedule. Things start to creep into those spaces. In the olden days, people had a word for it. And this word is acedia. And today, maybe we can call it the flip-flop spirit. Now, this word acedia, what does it mean? It's an old word that means lack of concern or care. One person who has a blog describes acedia like this. When we have, okay, and when I read this, try to imagine this. Have you ever experienced, okay? When we have frittered away the morning, letting ourselves be distracted from the task in hand, and when it hardly seems worth trying to salvage the rest of the day, when our energy levels are low, 
when we are facing the monotony of the daily routine, and when a creeping spiritual inertia and indifference starts to undermine us. That is when acedia, or as he calls it, the noonday demon, strikes us. How, how many of us have felt like that? Jean-Charles Nault wrote this, the, the noonday devil is the demon of acedia, a vice also known as sloth. And maybe you've heard of sloth as one of the seven deadly sins. However, he goes on to, to write this. The word sloth, however, can be misleading, for acedia is not laziness. In fact, it can mes- met, um, manifest itself as, as busyness or activism. Rather, acedia, and here's, here's another definition, is a gloomy combination of weariness sadness, and a lack of purposefulness. It robs a person of his capacity for joy and leaves him feeling empty or void of meaning. Have you ever felt like this? This gloomy combination of weariness, sadness, and a lack of purposefulness. Notice how how acedia can look like laziness or like being really busy. But it's clear what the result is. It leaves you feeling empty or void of meaning. Maybe you're feeling this now. And like it or not, summer is a time when acedia can take root. It doesn't have to. It's not a foregone conclusion. But there is a strong likelihood. And why is this? Because of the factors that I've already mentioned. But I think that the main reason for this, that acedia can take root, is because there's a change in schedule. We're away from what's normal. We're creating a new normal. And we're dealing with kids being at home all day. And we're working hard and looking forward towards the weekend. But when the weekend comes around, it feels like there's so much packing and preparing and driving and then unpacking and setting up and driving back and washing and cleaning that at the end we're more tired than if we had never gone in the first place. And so we go into the work week, the next work week, with our energy low, which makes us look forward to the next weekend even more, only for this cycle to repeat, until we find ourselves looking forward to the fall when a normal schedule can be established. It's a bit ironic. And this change in schedule also means that sometimes we miss church, we miss the, the, the fellowship, we miss the preaching, the worship songs, we miss our grow group because they're taking a break through the summer, most of them. We, we miss our friends. And when you combine this change in schedule with a lack of spiritual fellowship, it can be a potentially dangerous place. You see, we can look forward to the, to the summer so much that if it doesn't live up to our expectations, which it probably won't, we can be really disappointed. And into that feeling of disappointment, acedia can flourish without us even realizing it. We can drift and we don't even realize it. The Lofoten Islands form an archipelago in Norway. It's a beautiful area. The highest mountain there is nearly 4,000 feet high and the world's Deepest coral reef is there. There are millions of, of, of seabirds there, including sea eagles, including cormorants and puffins. 
And there's also things like otter and moose. It's a beautifully lush and green area. And on Wikipedia, it says that the Lofoten Islands are characterized by their mountains and peaks, sheltered inlets, stretches of seashore, and large virgin areas. Maybe you can have a picture of what that's like in your mind. While Lonely Planet writes that the beauty of this place is simply staggering. So it sounds absolutely gorgeous. Maybe you'd like to go there. I know I do. And what's also amazing is that the temperatures here vary from between 3 degrees and 14 Celsius, which might not seem that impressive until you consider the fact that the Lofoten Islands are way north of the Arctic Circle. Think about it. An area in the Arctic that gets up to 14 degrees in the summer, and the average temperature never goes below zero. That's crazy. So why is this? How has this come come to happen? How can these islands, which are home to so much natural beauty, exist so far north of the Arctic Circle? What is it that allows abundant life to exist where there should be a frozen and a dead landscape? The answer is simple. It's the Gulf Stream. A warm and swift current that originates in the Gulf of Mexico. It follows the eastern coastline of the United States and Newfoundland before crossing the Atlantic Ocean. And halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, the Gulf Stream splits into two. And the southern stream is called the Canary Current. And it heads towards West Africa. While the northern stream, the North Atlantic Drift, heads north and ultimately brings life to the Lofoten Islands. And so because of the North Atlantic Drift... This never-ending supply of warm water, the Lofoten Islands beat the odds. Over to the east of the islands, on the same latitude is Nunavut. And over to the west, on the same latitude, is Murmansk in Russia, where temperatures regularly drop below 30 degrees Celsius. But what did Lofoten do right that Nunavut or Murmansk did wrong. Nothing. Except that the Lofoten Islands found themselves in the pathway of the North Atlantic Drift, blessed by all that goodness and warmth from the Gulf of Mexico. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Psalm 1, verse 1. Same psalm that we read earlier on. But this time I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Psalm 1, verse 1 says this, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all that they do. What someone here is saying is, is that Christians... As Christians, we, like the Lofoten Islands, we can beat the odds. We can, we can experience joy, as verse 1 says, Oh, the joys of those. We can be the spiritual version of the Lofoten Islands. And as summer is facing us with all of our expectations and hopes and dreams, we can thrive spiritually. And, the very, and as the very real possibility of acedia, remember that purposeless, that listlessness, as it rears its ugly head, we do not have to be afraid. 
As we swap our winter and spring schedule for a summer schedule, we don't have to worry. We can say along with someone, oh, the joys, but only as we delight in the law of the Lord, only as we delight ourselves in the written word of God. And as we do that, we're nourished and we flourish. And that's as simple as it gets. As we delight in the law of the Lord, we resist acedia, this purposelessness that so often ends up in sin. It means that we can resist the wicked and the sinners and the mockers. It means that we can be like trees planted along the riverbank. We can be like the Lofoten Islands planted in the path of the Gulf Stream. Our leaves will never wither, it says. We will prosper in all that we do. But to enjoy the benefits of this, we need to make a decision. We need to, orient, we need to orientate ourselves in a particular way. None of it might will itself to be a flourishing paradise, but it will never happen. And Murmansk could long for warmth and for life, but it will never achieve it. And we can long for spiritual growth, continued spiritual growth, but it will never happen unless we change our geography. And I'm not talking about changing our physical geography. I'm talking about changing our spiritual geography. It's about living in a way that we're placed right in the middle, not of the Gulf Stream, but of God's stream. It's about quitting your flip-flopping and getting joy in Jesus. And we will find out that we can flourish wherever we're planted, wherever that may be. And so to help us do this, we're going to be going through the book of Philippians. Week by week, throughout the summer and beyond, we're going to make our way through this wonderful letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. And why I think this letter is so key for us is because it's all about Christ and it's all about joy. Those two things, it's all about these two things, all about Christ and it's all about joy. Joy or rejoice is referred to 16 times in this book, while Christ is mentioned 35 times. And I believe it's only as we experience the joy that comes through encountering Jesus Christ that we can fight off acedia, that we can beat the odds. But maybe you're thinking, but you don't know what I'm going through. And of course, I don't know what you're going through, but get this. Paul was in jail when he wrote this book. And he learned to quit his flip-flopping by getting joy in Jesus. In jail. And like Paul, you can replace purposelessness with purpose. Like Paul, you can replace listlessness for listening to the voice of God. And like Paul, you can replace being busy with the blessing of rest in God. Your, your barbecue and your backyard can become the place where you connect meaningfully with the God of the universe. Our campgrounds and our trailer parks can become our mission fields. Our tents will become an extension of the embassy of the kingdom of God that's here at Cornerstone. And in the provincial parks of Ontario, we will be representing the king of the universe. Our summer of just getting by will become a summer of joyfully getting on with it. Instead of waiting for fall, we will be waiting on God. And the key to all of this is joy. 
Joy in Jesus is what's going to unite us as a church throughout this summer. It's going to redefine our summer experience, whether we stay or we go, whether we work longer hours or we take off for long weekends. We will be able to say along with the psalmist, oh, the joys of those who delight in the law of the Lord. Joy in Jesus will equip us to quit our flip-flopping. And here's a little bit of a pun. Though we might be wearing flip-flops on the soles of our feet, we can banish flip-flops from our souls. We can become steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. And this is where true rest takes place, sticking close to Jesus and finding joy in that relationship. Rest comes from opening the Bible and rejoicing in what we're learning about God. Rest comes from having a clean conscience that we find that we can have when we make constantly God-glorifying decisions. And as we learn what it means to live with joy, we become steady in the Lord. We will learn to live without flip-flops. And that, it really doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. It really doesn't even mean that we stop sinning. But it means that we start to sin less. And when we do sin, we turn to God quickly in true repentance. In the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 4, it says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. And in the Life Application Study Bible, listen to what it says about the difference between happiness and joy. It says this, the word happiness evokes visions of unwrapping gifts on, sun, on, on Christmas morning, strolling hand in hand with the one you love, being surprised on your birthday, responding with unbridled laughter to a comedian, or vacationing in an exotic locale. Everyone wants to be happy. And we make chasing this elusive ideal a lifelong dream. Spending money, collecting things, searching for new experiences. But if happiness depends on our circumstances, what happens when the toys rust, when the loved ones die, when health deteriorates, when money is stolen and the party is over? Often happiness flees and despair sets in. But in contrast to happiness stands joy, running deeper and stronger. Joy is the quiet, confident assurance of God's love and work in our lives, that he will be there no matter what. Happiness depends on happenings, but joy depends on Christ. Happiness depends on happenings, but joy depends on Christ. End of quote. So through these next number of weeks, as we look at Philippians, we will discover a multifaceted joy, a joy that is so big Paul has to command us to rejoice not once but twice in chapter 4, verse 4. And as I slowly read through this following list, which shows off the many facets of joy in Philippians that we're going to be looking at, start considering where is it that you're lacking? In what areas of your life do you need what only joy, the joy of Jesus, can bring? So, do you need a joy that completes 
Do you need a joy that overflows? Do you need a joy that brings confidence? Do you need a joy that encourages or a joy that enables you to go through suffering? Do you need a joy that unifies or a joy that exalts Jesus or a joy that shines? Do you need a joy that connects you to others or a joy that fights? Do you need a joy that brings perspective or a joy that presses on? Do you need a joy that anticipates or a joy that brings peace? Do you need a joy that focuses, a joy that satisfies, or a joy that supplies? Because this is the joy that we see threaded through the book, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And this joy is discovered in Jesus alone. Remember this, that Paul was writing this letter from prison. What would you be writing if you were in prison? One writer calls this Paul's joy letter. Do you feel like right now you're in prison? Well, this letter is written for you. You can apply it to your life right now. And through this book of Philippians, we will discover many encouraging truths. As Stan Guthrie points out, we will learn, listen to what we'll learn through this book. We'll learn that our salvation is assured that God works even in the hard things of life, that death no longer controls us, that Christ's humility provides a visible model for our own, that God enables us to do his will, that nothing we have accomplished even remotely compares to the glory of Christ, that we are free to live for God, and that God will give us all that we need in this life. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about getting stuck into this book, into this letter. Now, this book is full of verses that we would do well to memorize. And some of these may may be even your life verse. So let me just read through some of them so that we can start getting excited. This is just a primer. This sermon is just a primer about what's heading our way. So let me read through some of the key verses. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not Count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Chapter 3, verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Chapter 3, verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Chapter 3, verse 13, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 6, and I'm sure many of us have meditated on this 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 8. How many of us haven't prayed this this prayer, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Chapter 4, verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me Chapter 4, verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours. Listen to that. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. These are some of the key verses that we're going to be looking at over the next weeks and months. And I challenge you to make a commitment to memorizing some of these verses as we go through the book of Philippians. This is how we fight off acedia. This is how we get joy. And as I mentioned earlier, the book, this letter of Philippians, was written from prison. And, I, and I've already said, I'm going to say it again, that joy or rejoice is mentioned 16 times. But the reason that Paul was overflowing with joy was because this church had a very special place in his heart. And here's a little bit of, of background, of history Because we can trace the church of Philippi to three amazing sets of events in Acts chapter 16. So please turn there to Acts chapter 16. This is how the church started. These are the people that he's writing to. Acts chapter 16 verse 11. Acts chapter 16, verse 11 says this, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman Roman colony. So there's the word Philippi. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart, what an amazing phrase, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the Philippian church in embryo. This is where it all began, on the banks of the river. So how did your journey with Jesus start? Because every epic journey begins with a single step, right? This simple prayer meeting next to a river involving a group of women started the church at Philippi. So that's the first event. Second event is in verse 16, where it says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had 
a a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. I love that. It's like, are you saying a bad thing here? You know? And, uh, And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. You know, can you imagine hearing truth like that so often that it annoys you to the point that you cast out a demon? Like, he must have been really annoyed. So that's the second one. Okay, God broke into this demon-possessed slave girl in a miraculous way. That's event number two. Event number three. Acts 16, verse 19. This tells us that because they did this, Paul and Silas get thrown into jail. Then in verse 25, we find out that Paul and Silas were praying and singing singing hymns to God. Now we understand why Paul can write this letter from jail, because he's the kind of guy that sings hymns in jail. He finds his joy wherever he is. And then there was this massive earthquake and all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And then in verse 27, we read this. When the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So from these accounts, Tim Keller tells us that the Philippian church was created from a wealthy Asian woman who feared God, a native Greek slave girl who was in spiritual turmoil, and a blue-collar Roman jailer who was most likely very practical and indifferent to spiritual things. An Asian, a Greek, and a Roman. One wealthy, one a slave, and one blue-collar. One God-fearing, one in spiritual turmoil, and one couldn't care less. And yet God created this church from this little seed No wonder Paul was rejoicing when he wrote to the church at Philippi. And so as I look out at our congregation, what's your ethnic background? What's your profession? What's your story? What's your spiritual state? Are you in love with Jesus? Or are you in deep spiritual turmoil? Are you just waiting for the sermon to be done so that you can get out of here? Well, this is the church that God is building in North Gore. You are the church that God is building here in our nation's capital. And together, we are getting to know Jesus, to grow in Jesus and to show him to others. And I think it's incredible that the church in Philippi was made up of people like Lydia, like the demon-possessed girl, and the jailer. And I'm amazed that God broke into their lives in such a powerful way. Seriously, it amazes me. 
But it no less amazes me to look out at this congregation here and to see what God is doing in North Gore. We all have our stories. We all have our backgrounds. We all have those things that very few people know about. And one of the things I've loved being senior pastor is that some of you are starting to tell me your stories. And it's amazing. We all bring our stuff and our baggage on our journey But as we spend this next season looking at the book of Philippians, I believe that something profound is going to happen in our midst. We're going to learn as a church family that we can indeed, as Philippians 4 verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it, rejoice. Whatever latitude or geographical location we find ourselves throughout the next weeks, don't be none of it. Don't be Murmansk. God is calling us to be the Lofoten Islands, green and verdant and full of life, because we're placing ourselves in the way of his warm and life-giving power. And as we spread out over the summer and do our own thing, as we flip-flop around our campsites, backyards, our boats, our homes and trailers, we will be learning how to live without spiritual flip-flops as we get joy in Jesus. We will learn what that life looks like that God blesses with continual spiritual growth. We will be learning to live lives of joy. And if God could do what he did with a businesswoman, with a slave, and with a jailer, imagine what he can do with us. So quit your flip-flopping. Get joy in Jesus. Or as Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it, rejoice always.